Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Immigration is one of America's most divisive issues. Congress has thus far failed to come up with a comprehensive immigration reform plan that enjoys bipartisan support. Donald Trump made illegal immigration a key component of his presidential campaign platform. Now, as president, Trump continues to focus on immigration, and his administration's policy of separating families who cross the border with Mexico has generated considerable controversy. Despite the image of the U.S. as a nation of immigrants, fear and distrust of immigrants has waxed and waned throughout the country's history. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, we're joined by Erica Lee, an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, Regents Professor of History and Asian American Studies, a distinguished McKnight University professor, and the Rudolph J. Vicoli Chair in Immigration at the University of Minnesota. She is currently on leave as the director of the U's Immigration Research Center. She's the author of a new book titled America for Americans, a history of xenophobia in the United States. She joins us by phone. Professor Lee, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you so much. For Americans who support the Trump administration's policies to limit the number of immigrants and refugees allowed into the country, in other words, to have closed borders, when asked about their own family's immigration to the U.S., the retort is often that their family came here legally. For someone who studies immigration history in the U.S., is this notion true? Did the majority of European immigrants in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries enter legally, while immigrants from other countries, notably non-white countries, arrive here illegally? That's actually not true, and it has uh, a lot to do with our laws. So for most of U.S. history... There are very, very few limitations on who could come into the country. So, in fact, there was not a distinction between legal or illegal immigration. Beginning in the early 20th century, late 19th and then early 20th century, we started to erect bands and walls. And those restrictions on immigration always targeted non-European immigrants. So, for them, there were restrictions. It was harder to come in. Some did start to cross the border, across the U.S.-Mexico border or even the U.S.-Canadian border, um, and Chinese immigrants were actually the first undocumented immigrants. Some European immigrants also came in by stowaway or crossing the border or simply not going through the immigration inspection. So to say that today's immigrants do not come in the right way is not true. It falsely characterizes how immigration works. There are lots of requirements and the wait time for visas for those who want to come in legally is 20 years for some countries. For a nation that likes to call itself a nation of immigrants, how prevalent is xenophobia throughout our history? It's very prevalent. So on the one hand, the United States has welcomed generations of immigrants. And that part of our country's history of being a nation of immigrants does ring true. But the other side, the fact that the U.S. is a nation of xenophobia, that we have irrationally hated and feared immigrants, is also equally true. In your book, you cite three examples of when the term America for Americans was used. 
The first came from a 1916 speech by Teddy Roosevelt that urged assimilation among immigrants. The second, a 1920s pamphlet published by the Ku Klux Klan. And the third, author Madison Grant used the term in a 1925 article that called for limiting or even suspending all immigration in the U.S. In these three cases, what did America for Americans mean and why did you use the term as the title of your book? Yes, so when Teddy Roosevelt called for an America for Americans, he didn't just mean assimilation. He meant a really sort of coercive and forced kind of of assimilation to abandon all allegiance to a former homeland, which also included the language, the customs, the style of dress. He specifically thought that immigrants, and he was thinking really only about European immigrants, um, that the only way for them to become fully integrated was to abandon all of their um, former cultural and heritage. For the KKK, America for Americans meant a country that was based on and maintained white supremacy. Of course, they are famously against miscegenation, racial mixing, but also they feared that the United States was being threatened by what they saw was an invasion of, of foreigners who would push the U.S.'s native-born aside. And for them, the native-born didn't mean Native Americans, it didn't mean African Americans who had born in this country, but specifically white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. For Madison Grant, who was a eugenicist who believed in preserving a white-majority uh, racial makeup of the United States, America for Americans also meant the United States privileging the rights and the dominance of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants as well. And the reason why I chose the title for this book is because it clearly encapsulates this ongoing notion and idea that was translated into policy that the United States welcomes immigrants, but in reality only immigrants who will help preserve what these three leaders and and groups believe, that America for white Americans. And that is a troubling part of our country's identity that is not only rooted in our history, but which we've seen resurface today. How do economic, political, and cultural factors contribute to surges in xenophobia throughout American history? So there is certainly a truth to the fact that during times of anxiety and war, political unrest, rapid demographic change, that a fear and hatred of immigrants can rise to the surface. And that is the underlying theme of many of the scholarly books and articles on anti-immigrant sentiment, as well as a popular understanding about how xenophobia works. But history shows that xenophobia never goes away. It doesn't really rise and fall. It's it's actually deeply embedded in our outlook, in our ideology. It's embedded in our politics. I talk in the book about how the very first anti-immigrant political party was established in the 1850s and how they really effectively used the scapegoating of immigrants to their political advantage and how since then political parties have often and routinely used 
the scapegoating of immigrants, to mobilize voters, to elect certain politicians, to enact anti-immigrant policies, but also to simply shift the balance of power in their favor. So it's embedded in our politics, our worldview, but it's also embedded in our economy. Xenophobia, unfortunately, sells. Some of the best-selling books in the 19th century were just horribly racist and anti-Catholic books that purported to reveal atrocities, sexual atrocities, and other atrocities that were happening in convents. Uh, We know that xenophobia sold magazines in the early 20th century, and we know that it sells online clicks and helps bring viewers to online sites today. We're talking with Erica Lee. She's a Regents Professor of History and Asian American Studies at the University of Minnesota. Her latest book is titled America for Americans, A History of Xenophobia in the United States. How has immigration law been enforced and how has deportation been employed throughout U.S. history? We have, for most of our early history, had very limited regulations on immigration. Certainly, the colonies tried to regulate immigration as well as establish naturalization rights for European immigrants. The federal government doesn't start to really enforce immigration laws and pass immigration laws that would be enforced on the federal level until the 1870s, 1880s. The Chinese Exclusion Act is passed in 1882. It's the first law to single out a specific immigrant group for exclusion. And in doing so, it also sets in motion the hiring of the first immigration officials, detention barracks, deportation mechanisms, and border enforcement as well. Since more immigrants have come and since the debate over who is coming and whether there's too many and whether they're good or bad for the country has increased. New laws have been passed and new uh, mechanisms have been put into place to arrest and deport immigrants. Still, it's not until very recently, in the past 30, 40 years, that we have engaged in massive deportation raids and mass arrest, detention, etc. And this is not a Republican versus Democratic issue. It's really a bipartisan effort. President Clinton helped to militarize the U.S.-Mexico border. President Bush transferred U.S. immigration enforcement mechanisms from the Department of Justice to the newly established Department of Homeland Security. Under President Obama, the U.S. government supported record numbers of immigrants, and this has only increased during President Trump's administration as well. Minnesota has been home to large numbers of Scandinavian immigrants and, in our more recent history, to Hmong and Somali refugees. How do you see Minnesota's immigrant history in comparison to the rest of the U.S.? Minnesota encapsulates really rich and very pertinent examples of America's immigration history. The Scandinavians that you mentioned were 40% of the Minnesota population in the 1890s. That's a a huge number. So today, in um, comparison, in 2019, 
There are many who say we have too many immigrants in the United States. There's just around 14.5% of the total population. So the fact that Minnesota in 1890 was 40% foreign-born um, gives listeners a little bit of context. Most of those immigrants were Irish, German, but especially um, Scandinavian. For these groups, America never closed its gates, never closed its doors to Northern and Western European immigrants. They have been throughout history, considered the good ones. Now, in more recent years, Minnesota has welcomed uh, refugees, as you mentioned, from Southeast Asia, as well as from Africa. We don't have the largest numbers of refugees compared to other states, but 7% of the state's population is foreign-born, and a large percentage are refugees. And these groups have faced Scrutiny. The Hmong, when they first arrived in the 1980s, were considered barbaric, uncivilized, um, a threat to the United States, a drain on financial public resources and benefits. And Somalis today have been considered to be terrorists, potential terrorists, and have faced a lot of local and federal government surveillance. So, in many ways, Minnesota encapsulates both the idea of the U.S.'s welcome to immigrants, but also its xenophobic phase as well, its xenophobic space of American immigration history, which makes Minnesota both a really interesting place to study, but also a place where both this history and contemporary debates about immigration are especially important. Tell us about academia's history in promoting xenophobic ideas and policies. How did anti-immigration sentiment get intellectualized in colleges, and how did those ideas influence real-world policies and practices? Some of the country's leading scientists, both in terms of the physical, biological sciences, as well as the social sciences in the early 20th century, were instrumental in shaping ideas about race, and immigration, and Americanist. And it's famously been taught as a notion of certain groups being inferior and certain groups being superior. So basically confirming racist ideas. And of course, in the early 20th century, the groups that were considered naturally superior, biologically superior because of their intellectual abilities and physical abilities were white, and specifically uh, Northern, Western, European, Anglo-Saxon, Protestants. And those at the bottom were African Americans, and then uh, a step up, uh, Native Americans, Hispanics, Asians. But it was a very clear divide between white and non-white. And those ideas were spread through academic conferences, through books and um, speeches. One of the most famous leading figures of this time is Madison Grant, a best-selling author, a very well-educated and respected author whose works were constantly taught in colleges, but also read by our country's lawmakers. And his ideas made it directly into U.S. immigration policy in the 1920s when we put into place discriminatory national origin quotas that kept the doors open to Northern and Western Europeans, but closed them to Asians and greatly restricted them 
uh, for Southern and Eastern Europeans. Before Trump, immigration seemed like a subject neither major political party really wanted to tackle, or at least in our modern political era, leaders could never form a bipartisan coalition to pass ambitious immigration legislation. Now it seems Democrats have taken a stance of pro-immigration and the party's presidential candidates are pledging things like free health care to anyone who crosses the border, whether legally or illegally, something a majority of Americans, according to polls, oppose. But a majority of Americans do not agree with the current administration's separations of families at the border, and a majority thinks the Dreamers should be provided a path to citizenship. That fate, of course, now currently in the hands of the Supreme Court. Let's talk about these stark divisions. Is there a middle ground, and are there immigration policies that a majority of Americans would support? I believe there is a middle ground, and in fact, in the previous Two administrations under George W. Bush and under President Obama, there were moderates from both sides who put forward comprehensive immigration reform. Both administrations had named comprehensive immigration reform, which would have created a pathway to citizenship for the Dreamers, as well as border security. Both administrations had put forward proposals, but could not get majority support in Congress. So there has been bipartisan support for immigration reform, something that we have not had since 1965. So we are well due for some changes in immigration policy. And I do believe that right now, under the current administration, immigration policies are, as you mentioned, most Americans, the majority of Americans, do not support. So we're at a stage where we have policies put into place that many consider extreme. We've moved farther away from a place of compromise. But I believe that there has always been room for discussion, room for creating immigration policy that's based on rational, economic, political, and social Uh, issues rather than an irrational fear and hatred of immigrants, which is the very definition of xenophobia. With immigration being such a partisan and polarizing issue, is it becoming harder for you to teach this history? In other words, are there divisions among your students? And how do you teach a subject that is currently affecting the lives of students from other countries or who were born to immigrants? Uh, How is that impacting the way you teach? My students and their experiences, many of whom are first-generation immigrants and refugees, really inspired the writing of this book. As we were learning, as we learn about immigration history, I always include at the beginning of every lecture what's going on with immigration today. I'm always insistent that this history is not just something that is over and done with, but that has a very direct impact and provides uh, essential context in understanding the issues of the day. And beginning in 2015 and 2016, when then-candidate Donald Trump would first announce his presidential campaign by um, making immigration uh, a central part of his campaign, but also in a way that specifically named Mexicans as rapists and criminals, and then called for a complete and total shutdown of, of Muslims from the United States, 
my students uh, expressed their fears to me. And certainly after the 2016 election, they were very frank. They were afraid of being deported. They were afraid of being separated from their families. They were afraid of being victims of hate crimes. And they consistently asked me, what's going on? How could this happen? How could this happen today in 2016, today after the civil rights movement, after our first two terms of an African-American president? And I, I didn't have the answers for them then. It's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. Um, I find that students are eager to understand and get to the root of these complex issues. Yes, it's polarizing, but when you break it down and you look at the facts and you look at myths and you look at how things are being promoted by both sides and you look at the range of um, opinion and issues, but then apply the facts, they're eager to get to the bottom of this and to understand how immigration really works what the threat of xenophobia is, and to start talking about what we might do to fix it. We're talking with Erica Lee. She's a Regents Professor of History and Asian American Studies at the University of Minnesota. Her latest book is titled America for Americans, A History of Xenophobia in the United States. What do you think is behind the rise of white supremacy and anti-immigration sentiments, not only here in the U.S., but also in other parts of the world? You know, one answer that I hear a lot in the media is that white supremacy is on the rise and xenophobia is on the rise because global migration is on the rise. And I don't agree with that. I think that certainly in the U.S., these feelings, these ideas and policies that have been based on white supremacist ideas and inequality, racial discrimination, have always been part of the United States during times of high immigration, but also during times of low immigration. So I think that part of the answer is that, unfortunately, you know, American racism has been part of our founding, and we we haven't solved those problems. Uh, When we think about xenophobia as a form of racism, we can better understand how it has endured in the United States. But there is also a larger context of fear and anxiety as the United States is becoming more globally connected. Our economics are more dependent on the economics of other countries. The United States is not seen as such a powerful global leader as it once was. So I do feel that these fears and anxieties of Americans are driving some of these sort of fallbacks white supremacy and and white nationalism, but it's absolutely true that these have always been part of the U.S. society. The climate crisis is predicted to increase the number of refugees around the world. Where do you see the immigration debate in 10 years? How do you think the U.S. and other countries will respond to the potential growing number of climate migrants? There are at least two different directions and two very extreme directions. One is that we will follow the lead of other countries in Europe by continuing to close our borders and to deal with the refugee crisis by essentially 
enforcing or asking other countries, our neighboring countries, to deal with the migrants before they get to the United States. So in Europe, um, one of the ways in which the refugee crisis of 2015 was solved was by the European Union making agreements with countries like Turkey and Lebanon to open up their borders, but to basically um, open them to migrants in order to keep them in refugee camps with no opportunity for integration into the local economy or society. I fear that the United States may be going in that direction, which will not solve the migration crisis, will not create new opportunities for those who are forced to leave. The other option is to really consider that this is not going to be a problem that's going to be going away anytime soon and that we need to address more globally both migration policies as well as climate change policies. This, this is not the direction that our current government is going in, but these two options we know are already, uh, other countries have already been grappling with them, and it's clear that a country-by-country country solution is, is only going to get us so far. These are much larger issues that we as a global community need to address. Erica Lee is an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, Regents Professor of History and Asian American Studies, a distinguished McKnight University professor, the Rudolph J. Vicoli Chair in Immigration History, the Director of the Immigration History Research Center, she's currently on leave, all at the University of Minnesota. Also, she is the author of a book titled America for Americans, A History of Xenophobia in the United States. Professor Lee, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for having me. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Professionals in science, technology, engineering, and math, the so-called STEM careers, are in high demand. Yet, women and people of color remain greatly underrepresented in these careers. Next week on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at a partnership between the University of Minnesota and a St. Paul Middle School to support students from groups typically underrepresented in STEM as they participate in a science fair. Be sure to visit us online at DialogueMinnesota.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.